This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. How optimistic are Canadian small businesses feeling these days, especially BIPOC small business owners? Well, this is a question that Scotiabank has actually been asking them, and there's a new survey out about that. So joining us now is Jason Charlebois, Scotiabank Senior Vice President of Small Business. Jason, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me this morning, Timmy. So what were you looking at with small businesses? What did you want to find out from them? Well, at, at Scotiabank, we're obviously always focused on providing relevant advice and, and support to our small business community. And over the last uh, you know, 18 plus months, that's been more important than ever. So we've commissioned uh, a study called the Path to Impact for the last several years. And we're looking at um, how business owners are feeling, um, what trends they're seeing, and uh, making sure that we're uh, there and adapting and, and being uh, able to relevantly serve and, and, and advise them uh, to navigate through these challenging times. Okay, so what do they need or what are they telling you that they need? Um, the, the report this year actually uh, demonstrates a lot of optimism. Um, significant improvements, generally speaking, across businesses, including BIPOC businesses, as you, as you mentioned, in terms of uh, their outlook. Uh, feeling better. Um, uh, obviously, small business uh, uh, um, owners in Canada are a huge part of the Canadian economy. Uh, small businesses employ over 8 million Canadians, and you know their, their success equals the economic success of our country. So it's really encouraging to see that most small business owners, about three-quarters of them, feel well-prepared to continue uh, their operations and, and feel better prepared to, to survive if there's another wave of of COVID or, right. uh, or uh, another uh, change. So how critical was digital capability to all of this? Because this is, I know that here in BC, that is something that the government focused on, right? Helping businesses go online. But I know your survey talked about this as well. Yeah, the, the interesting thing that um, that really showed the entrepreneurial spirit of small businesses is, is their ability to adapt and operate, um, you know, in uncharted ways and find, find ways to survive. So uh, many small businesses uh, added products and services through the course of the pandemic, about 20% of them. And most of those businesses um, did that through adding new channels, adding digital capabilities, launching a website or an app uh, uh, to support their business. And uh, those things have, have A, uh, set them up for um, the new normal, which obviously is consumer preferences have changed, uh, not just during this pandemic, but they've changed um, for the long term. So these businesses are now in a better position to uh, meet the ever-changing demands of consumers. Right. Let's talk specifically about British Columbia, if we could for a moment here. How are the small business owners in BC feeling about their businesses right now? Yeah, in BC specifically, the uh, the business owners that we talk to um, actually feel better than businesses in, in other parts of the country. About 58% of them feel they're doing the same or better than they were pre-pandemic, and that's that's uh, up over uh, how the rest of businesses across the rest of the country responded. And about one in five British Columbia businesses uh, did exactly what I said. Owners expanded to offer new products and services, which again was, was higher than the national average. So so I think the uh, innovation and, and entrepreneurialism in, in the BC market is definitely coming through. There's still a disparity, though, isn't there, Jason, between like small businesses and when you single out those small businesses that are owned by Black, Indigenous, and people of color, there is a difference between of how much confidence they feel. Um, well, the confidence uh, uh, exhibited in terms of the, the BIPOC uh, business owners that we talked to is actually higher than average businesses. However, BIPOC owners do feel um, that they're still... Um, uh, biased against in terms of um, facing systemic barriers to to succeed, 
Um, they have been more um, entrepreneurial, though, in the sense of offering more uh, digital services and adapting um, more quickly than than non-BIPOC businesses, which again is just demonstrating their fortitude and and uh, and resiliency to uh, to succeed. Is that something that financial companies are trying to navigate now too? Is it how to make sure that all types of businesses get support because there can be unique challenges? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we at Scotiabank have a have a, a national network of small business advisors who are trained um, and skilled to provide uh, planning services. Uh, uh, we call it Advice Plus to business owners to help ensure that they have access to capital. They um, uh, are taking advantage of the unique strategies that they need in order to manage their cash flow and uh, avail themselves of, of all the various support programs. There's a lot for businesses to navigate out there in terms of the various different government supports that are available to them, and, and our, our advisors are there and equipped to help, uh, help those businesses uh, navigate um, through what, it, what is a complex uh, operating environment for them. Yeah, it sure is right now then. So, okay, so what do you think this tells us about the business environment then for small businesses in Canada? Well, I think, it, you know, it's, it's a, uh, a good signal that our business uh, owners, our small business owners, again, representing over 8 million Canadian jobs, are feeling optimistic. Uh, the fact that they've demonstrated the resiliency and the entrepreneurial spirit that, that got them into being a business owner in the first place is shining through. And, um, you know, the future is still uncertain. However, they are better prepared now than they were uh, six months ago, 12 months ago to uh, sustain their operations through whatever challenges might lay ahead uh, as we move our way into uh, 2022. Lots ahead. All right, Jason, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it, Cindy. Thanks for having me. Yes, Jason Charlebaugh, who's Scotiabank's Senior Vice President of Small Business. They did a survey of about a 1,000 small businesses right across the country to essentially get an idea of how they're feeling right now. The BC uh, responses are really interesting. What they found is that in BC, more than half of small business owners, so 58%, feel they're doing the same or better than they were doing pre-pandemic. And that's more than across the country. Across the country, it was 54% actually feel that way. Uh, In BC, 18% of small business owners expanded during the pandemic to offer new products and services. That's also higher than the nationwide average of 16%. And so, as you could see, there's a lot to feel good about here in BC, but there are still things that need to be worked on. But when it comes to feeling optimistic, Well, 69% of BIPOC small business owners say they feel optimistic about their business's future, but it's 55% of their non-BIPOC counterparts who feel the same way. So there is a bit of a disparity there, but again, no doubt it has been challenging for a lot of small businesses and what this survey and many others have shown is that really going online, like getting a greater digital presence has made a real difference. If you're a small business owner, tell me your story about what happened during the pandemic. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, I think people are really getting into that Halloween spirit. I know well, three or four of my neighbors over the weekend put out all of their lawn decorations and all their spooky stuff, and it is fantastic. Our Raji Sohal is here this morning. Raji, do you have people like that in your neighborhood? Yeah, and I'm soon to become one of them. We used this last Thanksgiving weekend to put up the rest of our Halloween decorations, and I think that might become a new like tradition oh, yeah. for us that we'll do that on, on Thanksgiving. But I did make one big mistake, which was buying Halloween candy too early. And what are the chances <laughs> that any of that still stands Zero. on October 31st? It will not be there. No, the, <laughs> there's a particular house on my street that I really love because they go all out with the you know the lawn inflatables, the whole thing, and this. This year, they've added something new, which is a zombie that screams at you as you walk by. And okay. I just enjoy it. Like, and I, I walk on the other side of the street, just, just that's just the path that I go. But I really enjoy waiting for people to walk by that house and have that happen and seeing them jump. I just, I'm like, that's the spirit. That's the Halloween spirit. We didn't get inflatables, but I think that's in the cards for next year because my kids are really into them. But you know what else we got to early? We got a ch- uh, our children's costumes too no, early. No, no such thing as too early. Well, they commit to a new one every couple of days. It started out with my five-year-old wanting to be Joan of Arc because love she, she loves knights and she wanted to be a knight that's a leader and a woman. Then she was sure she wanted to be Nigella Lawson, the famous chef. Yeah, that baker. one puzzles me. 
Amen. <laughs> so good. Are you kidding? And then she, she just said the other day, I want to be a leaf because I love nature. And I'm like, a, a leaf? Like we will, you know, make you one giant Not leaf? like a Toronto maple leaf? Like I thought maybe she was, that's oh, what she was gosh. saying? No? No way. No, she wanted me to like basically collect a thousand leaves and like tape them to her. But this thankfully adorable. she changed her mind and she she was like, no, now I want to be uh, anything from Star Wars. And she landed on Ray. So I'm going to wait a couple of days before we recommit to any more costumes. But it made me wonder, hey, what are the popular Halloween costumes this year? I remember last year seeing way too many coronaviruses. And like not a single one was cute to me. People pretty would approach my door and I would shut the door. I would just shut pretty, the door. Don't pretty you come around sure, my house again. Pretty sure that this year the most popular costume for older people all is definitely Squid Game because yeah, I have seen so many stories about this and I, I'm sure it's going to be very unique, but it just makes me feel like I better watch this thing before Halloween actually happens. Yeah, I'm going to watch one episode. It doesn't sound like it's my bag. And I keep reading articles about how if you don't speak Korean, then it's not the one for you because the subtitles get it really wrong. There's so many articles about this and I'm not interested in watching like an entire botched series, but a hundred million, 111 million viewers have been interested in watching it. So it's just been massive. And um, I'm sure, yeah, a lot of costumes around that. And then also a lot of costumes around Cruella, you know, the Redux oh, of yeah. 101 Dalmatians. That's a popular costume that you can expect to see a lot of. That's the one with like the Emma Stone character. She's best known for her fashionable gowns in the in the film. And then she's got a two-tone wig that's like half black and a half white bob. Um, and then apparently a popular costume to expect out there this Halloween is Boris Johnson's running outfit. <laughs> I saw Did this. You? Yeah, he but ran in a. But that's a little obscure, don't you think? Because like that's it's not that obscure. You'd be I going think I would to catch it if someone was wearing a button shirt, black shorts, and dress socks, and going for a run. I mean, he is a definitely a unique individual. But if that came to my door, I would probably have to ask, "What are you?" Like, do you do you ask people sometimes? Like, I oh, give kudos. Sure. I give kudos if I see something super original. I'll be like, "Good on you! Love that costume." Any child, Last of course, year. just has an adorable costume anyway, but. Yeah, we saw a couple of Simpson memes last year. And when we asked what they what episodes they were from, like, wow, these people really nailed their costume. And Simpsons are memes are kind of the things that I you remember. It. So those are really good. I have to tell you this cute story though about when my sister first moved to the UK, she was invited to what they call a fancy dress party. They don't use the word costume. A fancy dress party means a costume party. So it was a Halloween party and she's thinking, oh, it's like a black tie formal. Well, okay, yeah, a fancy dress, of course. Yeah, so she puts on her fanciest dress and oh, goes no. to this party and she's the only one not oh, no. in costume. Oh, no. I just loved it. That's but hilarious. also, to me, is anyone going to a, a costume party this year, a Halloween party? Uh, doubtful. So I guess people are it's just on dressing a up Sunday. to candy. I'm thinking on a su- it's on a Sunday, and and my birthday's Halloween, so I I tend to keep track of Halloween trends. And I have found that anytime Halloween is on a, a weekend, like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, there are lots of Halloween parties, and I feel like people will still have one this year. But that's a good question to ask, right? Are you planning to throw one? Are you planning to go to one? Let me know, Simi at cknw.com. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Amy. We'll have more with Raji coming up a little bit later. But yeah, are you planning on going to a Halloween party or throwing a Halloween party? Let us know about that. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if you're feeling that urge to travel again, no doubt it's because of the news yesterday from the United States that they will reopen their land borders and ferry ports of entry with Canada and Mexico to fully vaccinated travelers In November, so next month, exact date still to come. But we know that after nearly two years to try to fight the spread of COVID-19, this is now the month where things are going to change. It is going to be next month. Meanwhile, vaccinated travelers from all other countries will be allowed entry into the U.S. in early January 2022. So they have laid this all out. But what we still don't know is whether anything is going to change For Canadians, what about the Canadian requirements to return home? Even if you go down for a day trip or a couple of days to the U.S., you still have to show, right now anyway, a negative PCR test when you return to Canada. So there are still 
a lot of questions about this whole process. If it's going to help businesses on both sides of the border, do we need to take another step with some of these requirements? Joining us now is Anita Haberman, CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Good morning, Anita. Good morning, Simi. So do you think we need to make some more changes here? Absolutely. Uh, We're pleased that the border is reopening. Obviously, we've been calling for it. Uh, We had hoped that it would happen the same time that the U.S. uh, uh, allowed uh, their border to be open um, uh, and and for Canada to uh, open their border as well. But um, that didn't happen. There's still many questions. Will mixed vaccine doses be recognized as fully vaccinated? Uh, what about the international vaccine passport? Uh, people are starting to make travel plans for Christmas. What about workers that go back and forth across the border? Uh, they have families uh, that live across the border. Why do returning Canadians need a negative PCR test? We're hoping the Canadian government uh, will eliminate that rule. Uh, what mitigation strategies and technology at the border will be uh, put in place to ensure efficient movement of traffic? Um, there's so many questions still that need to be answered, Simi. It sure sounds like it. So do you get any sense, though, that the government is listening to business groups like yours, Anita? No, they're not listening. Uh, there was a Canada-U.S. relations committee uh, that had been put in place by the federal government. The border reopening was not on the agenda. Uh, even our national uh, chamber of commerce, our head office, so to speak, in Ottawa, the Canadian chamber, they were not at the table either. Uh, there are specific private sector pieces uh, that uh, and, and inputs that could have been put into place Uh, quite early on in terms of a cohesive border reopening on both sides. And we had hoped uh, with the new U.S. president in place that uh, this collaboration around uh, common, efficient decision-making, timely decision-making around the border reopening uh, could have happened earlier, of course, adhering to health and safety protocols. What would it mean, though, for businesses to have some of these rules eased? It would mean that there is less uncertainty, less cost. Remember, a PCR test for a returning Canadian uh, can be as high as uh, or at least a minimum of $200 U.S. And uh, we know that uh, other governments uh, around the world have figured it out uh, in terms of how they cross their borders. Uh, in other parts of the world, uh, there's easy access to PCR tests if that is what is required. But if you are fully vaccinated, uh, why do you need that uh, PCR test? Uh, we would like to know. Um, and businesses would like to know as well. Yeah, that is a big one, right? Does That's going to deter a lot of day travel. Yeah, if you're a family of four and you're just going down uh, for the weekend uh, to get gas, milk, or whatever it is, uh, that can become very expensive. If you're a business owner and you're sending a worker, uh, we're on the border. Uh, Surrey is a border city. They're going into Washington State as a worker, but they have to return with a negative PCR test. This is an additional cost that businesses have to incur. But like for you, for the Surrey Board of Trade, isn't it more helpful that the land border is going to reopen and Americans can now come up here? Well, is it really uh, is, is it really easy for Americans even to come across the border? I, you know, we're not really seeing the effects of that. Uh, we're seeing a gradual increase of, uh, very gradual, of American visitors uh, into Canada. And uh, those hardest hit industries, that decision was made uh, late in the game in the summer. But uh, certainly, um, you know, we're hoping for a resurgence of of visitors uh, from America uh, next year. And uh, we'll see how that goes. All right, Anita, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Thank you. You take care. You too. Anita Huberman is the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade, calling for changes to the Canadian travel rules, that side of things. We know the Americans are changing things. They are loosening things up. They are saying, you'll, as of November, you will no longer need to have that negative COVID test to go to the United States. Plus, you can cross in a land border crossing. But you still need one to come back 
to Canada. You still need, and not just that, not just any test, a negative PCR test, which is uh, more expensive for sure for people. So on the American side of things, they're loosening things up. The Canadian side of things right now looks like we're keeping things the same. That's not sitting well with the tourism industry. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we're talking this morning about that border reopening, you know, with the United States, that land border and rules changing for you to be able to go to the U.S., but rules not changing for you to come home from the U.S., whether it's a day trip, three days, a week, two weeks, you name it, still the same thing. You still need a negative PCR test upon your return. So there's no word yet on when or if the Canadian government is considering changing those rules, but sounds an awful lot from what I've heard from you that that would have to change before some of you consider doing some more traveling. So let's find out how the tourism industry feels about this. I mean, they've been waiting for this announcement, but now it doesn't seem like it's all everything that people were hoping for. Joining us now is Vivek Sharma, chair of the Tourism Industry Association of BC. Vivek, thank you for being back with us. Thank you. Morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. How are you feeling about the announcement? I mean, I'm sure everybody was looking forward to it, but it seems like there are still some obstacles. Well, I mean, from a tourism industry perspective, there's really not much for us to comment on. This is for Canadians to be able to travel into the U.S. Uh, the border for Americans coming into Canada had been already open. Uh, obviously, as an industry, we continue to advocate for our borders to be open for more international visitors to come in so that uh, as much as we would want Canadians to go out and explore, uh, we also want at the same time international visitors to be able to come back into our country and explore uh, our beautiful province. Right. This is another sign, though, isn't it, Vivek, that the tourism industry perhaps has well some, some more steps towards normalcy? Yes. Um, you know, every step is a step in the right direction. Uh, every step forward is a step in the right direction. Uh, normalcy is still a long way away, but uh, we are slowly but steadily inching towards it. Have we seen an increase in American visitors coming to Canada ever since they were allowed to back in August when non-essential travel rules were, were lifted? I, I won't say we have seen an increase. Most of the most of the traffic that we saw once the borders were open to Americans was mostly family-related. Uh, it was too late in the season for leisure travel to be planned, and you know, with schools opening up uh, pretty close to the border reopening, we haven't. But we are hoping that we will see an impact uh, for our winter season, especially for our destination ski resorts. So it sounds like it's just still hoping, though. So nothing has really come back the way I guess the industry had been hoping. Not yet, but, you know, we, we never thought that it would be like a tab that you open it and water will stop, start, you know, dropping immediately. This will be a gradual return and it's, uh, it's a marathon rather than a sprint. So we just have to keep doing what we're doing, stay safe and keep following all of our health and safety protocols. Yeah, how is the industry doing then right now? I mean, I know there's a lot of Canadians who would like to travel, but there's also been labor shortages. And, and so what's it like for the tourism industry right now? Apart from the fiscal challenges, which have been documented uh, enough, I think the labor shortage or the labor crisis is, is the biggest roadblock for our operators right now. Um, there have been multiple instances across the province of um, accommodators, food service operators, or any, any tourism-related um, uh, business that has not been able to maximize uh, its potential due to shortage of labor, whether it's reduced hour, shutting down hour, you know, during the weekdays, even weekends, uh, reduced occupancy. Those are all major obstacles that collectively, you know, uh, we have to look at how we overcome them. Right. It's almost becoming the new normal, isn't it, Vivek? Like even for restaurants and whatever, I know that people are quite used to like, oh, reduced hours. Oh, well, it's probably because they don't have the staff now. Unfortunately, yes. But, uh, you know, we as as an advocacy organization, we are not accepting that as a new normal. And, you know, we, we are consistently working with various partners to ensure that we can overcome that. Because if that is the new normal, there is, there is a much larger uh, challenge ahead of us than we have even been able to comprehend. So it's just sounds like for now, staying the course, hoping everything... Staying the course. Yeah. Staying the course and, you know, staying safe. Well, good luck. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Simi. Thank you for having me again. Bye. This is Vivek Sharma, chair of the Tourism Industry Association of BC. Nothing has really worked out yet the way, 
They'd been hoping little steps, he said, steps in the right direction. But even though the Canadian border is open for recreational travel, it doesn't mean that, you know, hordes of people have showed up here. And even if they did, uh, we don't have a lot of occupancy for them. There's still a big labor shortage in the tourism industry. You know, hotels are not running at full capacity. They don't have all their rooms open. Even restaurants have, you know, changed their hours to cope with the labor shortage out there. So, even if the requirements were listed, I'm not sure people are still inclined to travel all that much. My question to you on this this morning is, do you think the Canadian government should lift the requirements of a negative PCR COVID test upon your return to Canada? So you as a Canadian, you know, you can fly into the U.S. anytime even now in November, according to them, you can come down across the border, you can drive. So if you've always wanted to go shopping down there or spend a day or two in Seattle, theoretically you can do that. But when you come back, as long as you're fully vaccinated, when you come back, you still have to show that negative PCR test. And it's expensive, not cheap. Something you know can be anywhere from $150 to $200 US to get that. So for a lot of people, it's just not a factor. You're not going to go until that gets lifted. Do you think the Canadian government should lift that? Or do you think, no, nah, that was put into place to protect us from bringing more COVID into the country, so we should probably keep that in place for a little while longer? Simi at cknw.com. You can call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. Now, Frank wrote to say, I support removing the requirement for the test when returning from the USA. I don't understand how it makes sense to allow one to get the test while still in Canada, then traveling and using the results upon returning to Canada. And if the test were to be positive, wouldn't that mean that you'd contracted the virus in Canada, Frank says? You know what? Great point, Frank. And what he's referring to, I think, there is the fact that some people take these short trips, right? If you want to go for a weekend, one night, two nights or whatever, down to the States, theoretically, you know, your test has to be taken within 72 hours of your departure. So you can take that test here, go down there for a day, two, come back. And yeah, if your test is positive, Frank's right. You would have actually tested positive here, right? That's where you would have contracted the virus. So that's a very good point on that. Thank you very much, Frank. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. You know, the latest real estate stats sure seemed contradictory, didn't they? For one thing, it showed that sales were down. Sales are down year over year, so we're not selling as many properties. On the other hand, prices are still rising. So what is going on out there? According to RBC in their new report, they say housing affordability is dropping more quickly than it has in 30 years. Prices are rising in markets right across the country. So is this making that whole issue that is already so challenging even more difficult? Well, joining us now is Adil Danani, who's the founder and principal of Danani Group Real Estate, Real Estate Advisors. Adil, thanks for being back with us. Thank you, Simi. Appreciate you having me back on the show. Yeah, these sound like really challenging circumstances. What's going on? So I think there's a confluence of factors that are at play here. Um, you know, over the past 18 months in our market, we've seen um, we've seen several factors that are pushing the market higher. I think the biggest concern right now is our housing supply is terribly inefficient. We have an anemic supply of inventory across all segments. And we were hoping for some relief there um, come fall. You know, sellers that perhaps were on the fence previously about listing their homes may have brought on inventory in the fall, but just, uh, that unfortunately has not been the case. So we're sitting at supply levels that we haven't seen in 30 years. So the lowest inventory of the single family detached in Tanos market in almost three, uh, in three decades. So what's being built then? So is it just like, so we have condos, are we not building enough townhouses? Yeah, I think it's the missing middle. Um, I think there's just a shortage of quality, a townhouse, uh, infill duplex product. And I think that's partly con- uh, attributed to the fact that there's so much municipal red tape, um, you know, delaying efforts of bringing on meaningful inventory. 
you know, there's there was that um, federal election push to bring on more supply. But the reality is, I mean, we know that this is not a federal issue. This is a this is really a municipal issue um, that needs to be collaborated with the provincial and federal levels. You know, it's like two to three years sometimes to bring on, you know, three to four unit projects, which is um, what the market really needs. You know, people um, oftentimes locals can't get into the single family market. Um, prices are out of reach in Vancouver. Um, and oftentimes folks don't want to be in condominium vertical living and they want that product right in the middle. And there's just not enough of it. But even if we're talking about it now, Adil, I mean, that's it's, it would be years away from making more yeah. of that product available. There was a, a survey. Um, so I, I work with Royal LePage, um, uh, one of Canada's largest brokerages. And, you know, 80, we did a survey um, earlier this year, 84% of the respondents we're concerned that with rising home prices, they may never become homeowners. Um, and in the G7, um, uh, the, a recent report found that Canada has the lowest number of housing units per 1,000 residents of any G7 country. Um, and this number has been falling since 2016 due to our sharp rise in population. So the other concern, if you add it to the mix, is what happens when borders open up? If we don't have enough supply now, what happens if we hit that mandate of almost 400,000 new folks coming to our country um, in 2022? What is that going to do to our market? So there is certainly some some concerns going forward. How is this? How are we going to see relief in the market? Because mm-hmm. as you noted and uh, as you prefaced uh, our conversation, prices are still on the rise. So would you say the pandemic has <laughs> exacerbated things, Adil? Yeah, I think that it's really delayed some folks from putting their homes on the market. Traditionally, we see fall being the second most busiest time of the market, second to spring. And while sales are down, the stats that you noted are absolutely accurate. There just is enough product to go around. And now we're starting to see um, multiple offers before commonplace, but now we're starting to see 20, 30 offers on the table for certain detached and townhouse inventory. That's crazy. It, it, it honestly is, and it's unfortunate, to be honest, when we're on the buy side of a transaction trying to represent, you know, local folks trying to get into the market, it's an extremely frustrating process. So you've got, let's say, 20 offers on the table, you have 19 buyers that are leaving that negotiation, um, you know, still out there searching for a home. Is this, um, do you think, across the country or are there certain markets where it's, it's worse? Yeah, it's across the country. Um, and I, in fact, it's worse in other areas of the country. Um, I was talking to some colleagues out east and in Ontario. Um, this is very, very common to see 20, 30, 40 offers on a property. So um, I'm hoping there's some relief, you know, that some folks decide. Because, we, you know, we're having conversations on a daily basis with our clients are looking to potentially sell. Um, there's obviously concern about not being able to fulfill what they want at purchase on the buy side. And so that is obviously hesit- creating some hesitation amongst, you know, um, that cohort of potential sellers right. that we're not going to be able to get what we want. So maybe we just sit tight for a little bit longer. All right, Adele, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. Appreciate you having me. This is Mornings with Simi. There is a very big climate conference coming up in Glasgow, Scotland. It's just around the corner, actually, in November. World leaders are going to be meeting to talk about climate change issues. Now, I know many people will be watching closely because some of us have been experiencing something called climate anxiety. I think it really kind of ramped up during that heat dome situation we had this summer, too. And our Raji Sohal joins us now for more on this. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, so the term climate anxiety is actually a psychologically psychologically defined um, term. Uh, The American Psychological Association says it's the prevailing sense of gloom and doom and stress and worry about the effects of climate change on one's individual lifestyle. And when we rewind to that heat dome that we experienced this summer, uh, the devastation of the wildfires and you know, our skies going orange and smoky at times, people losing their homes and whatnot. It wasn't until like, I think a lot of people literally found it hard to breathe and they had to adjust uh, their daily activities. Like don't go biking, don't go hiking, don't go outside, keep your kids inside, all of that stuff that I think people started to really feel that climate anxiety and having conversations, you know, with your family members and friends about it. And we were all kind of experiencing it. 
And a new program at UBC Forestry is addressing climate anxiety by showing people that what you have to do is take practical action. There's no hope without action. So I talked to Cheryl Ng, and she's the engagement coordinator at UBC's Faculty of Forestry. They're doing this program called Cool Hood Champs. It's a new project that looks to recruit, train, and empower local local climate champions uh, to take practical actions to cut carbon emissions, and then most importantly, to build like an emotional resilience around this kind of stuff so that we don't fall to the catastrophism of the uh, climate change. During the heat wave in Vancouver, um, I was both surprised and not surprised um, by how badly affected Vancouver was. So on one hand, I was just like, is this really happening? <laughs> and then on the other hand, I thought about it and I was like, well, you know what? The scientists have been um, warning us for, for decades, for years and years. And I mean, the UN also recently declared code rate for humanity, right? So it's not as though we didn't get the warning signs, but it's somehow, you know, whenever it happens, it just, it hits so close to home that it makes us start thinking like, yeah, I think we should do something about it. There's also this sense that, you know, hearing that term code red for humanity is it's just so beyond any of us as individuals. I remember, um, you know, gingerly removing the plastic from a tissue box before placing it in the recycling bin this summer and thinking, uh, am I making a difference? You know, and I, and I try not to buy stuff with excessive packaging or recycle whatever you can. And then I found out how little of what my family puts in the recycling box once a week actually gets recycled. And I'm not kidding, Simi, it started to make me spiral. I was thinking, how can I even begin to make a dent? Well, this new program at UBC, it takes that very uh, unproductive and uh, overwhelming attitude that I had and, and turns it into action. They say that the way to start out is just focus on your neighborhood, focus on your community. So the Cool Hoods program consists of a series of workshops. The aim is to take them all the way from step one, which is just, you know, having a conversation about climate change, all the way to then being able to take action at the neighborhood scale. So taking action, you know, involves recruiting other people, getting other people on board who are who care about climate change. It could even just be, you know, people like your family and friends who are close neighbors of yours. And the idea is that you then understand what climate change really means to your own neighborhood. Uh, based on a series of activities from the citizens' school kit that we take them through, we help them to identify the, you know, what the impacts and the vulnerabilities of climate change uh, they see in their own neighborhood in order to then turn that um, knowledge of what their neighborhood needs into real tangible action that they can implement after the workshop. Okay, so that's a really nice idea, right? The little things that people can do, but what are some of those little things? Yeah, some of them are little and actually some of them are more substantial. Like somebody in the program actually planted a tree in her backyard that she is hoping is going to grow to shade the house in the summer months when um, they would otherwise have to get AC and they want to avoid getting AC. And there's other things that they can do too. Some people go with community gardening. If they don't have property that they can plant trees on, they end up, you know, just joining a local gardening group to help green up and beautify um, their neighborhood. Other people who are more interested in, say, like transport and energy related things, they think about, oh, okay, if I could install solar panels in my house, how do I do that? Um, other people who are, you know, into, say, active transportation, they think, well, okay, maybe instead of driving five times a week to work, instead, maybe I'll think about cycling three of those days and then two of those days I will drive. Okay. I love that they try to come up with very tangible things. In our family, I've got two kids, husband, we're a family of four, and we made choices to live in our neighborhood because we want to be pedestrians. We want to walk around a lot. We don't want to rely on our car all the time. And luckily, Simi, right now I mostly work from home. I come into the studio uh, once a week right now. Um, but given my changing work hours and childcare needs, our family has been thinking about buying a second car and like the planet does not need another car on the road, especially one that's going to be driven all the time. Um, so I'm looking at, okay, well, what else can I do? Okay. I could bike into work. Now I love riding a bike, but I hate riding in the rain. <laughs> yeah. That's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. So it just made me realize that like we have to make some tough sacrifices, um, but that this kind of initiative that they're doing at UBC, it by connecting you with your neighbors and people in your community, you feel like, okay, these changes I'm making, they can make a difference. You're not just doing it, you know, um, in isolation. 
And I don't think that people don't care about climate change. I think that what looks like apathy is actually fear and that climate change is just so overwhelming and people don't want to be a bummer. So their answer is, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to avoid it, just avoid it and carry on and do business as usual. And I think a lot of people are also, uh, they're scared into inaction. They're scared of being seen as hypocritical. You look at how uh, Greta Thunberg, who, when she was just a child, right? Like when she was 13, 14, 15, she was getting harassed by grown men, world leaders, <laughs> for her efforts and that she wasn't making enough of an impact. You remember she sailed across the world to lessen her carbon footprint when she had to travel and everyone was scrutinizing her journey for how green it wasn't. I know. Like we need to just focus on what we can do and focus locally, I think. And this program at UBC allows you to do it like with your neighbors. Okay. And where can people find out more? Yeah, so you can check out their website for more information. And by the way, this program is free. Uh, The workshops are totally free. It's called the Cool Hood Champs Program. And there's more information on the website uh, for UBC Faculty of Forestry. All right, I love it. Thank you. Thanks, Simi. That is our Raji Sohal there. Yes, for more information, check out the UBC Faculty of Forestry's Cool Hood Champs Program. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, more politicians should really listen to this song because it sure tells them an awful lot about when maybe it's time for them to pack it in and quit while the going is good. Just take a look at the latest poll out from the Angus Reid Institute looking at the approval ratings of Canadian premiers. There might be a message there for a couple of them, but let's find out how it looks. Joining us now is Shachi Carl, president of the Angus Reid Institute. Hi, Shachi. Hi, morning, Sumi. Boy, it's still really quite pandemic-related, isn't it? Like, you can see the effects of that in this? You can, and yet you can see the effects of, call it a fatigue or a level of living with the pandemic in that, you know, it's not unusual, uh, if you think to pre-pandemic times, Simi, uh, for people in their province to be annoyed, irritated, unimpressed with their provincial leaders. And so when we look at the approval of these leaders, whether it's John Horgan in British Columbia or, or Jason Kenney next door or someone back east, you know, approval in the 30s or the 40s wasn't always all that unusual. But what happened during the pandemic uh, is we saw approval levels really skyrocket in terms of crisis. So people are worried, they're afraid, their premiers are coming out and saying, hey, don't worry, we've got this, we're going to help with this. That was almost, you know, it was more than a year and a half ago. It's coming up on almost two years ago. And now we start to see those numbers coming back down to earth as people really deal with worries around the fourth wave, worries around their kids, and will they be vaccinated or not? What's happening in schools? What's happening in long-term care? What's happening with the economy? So would you say then approval ratings are kind of normalizing again? Like what is a normal level for an approval, a range for an approval rating for premiers? I mean, it's, it, it often depends on the politician, um, her or himself. Of course, in, in uh, Canada, we only have male premiers at the moment. But um, it, it really depends on uh, on the premier. But yes, to your point, uh, an approval level in the 40s, in the 30s was not unusual pre-pandemic. Some of them were higher. Uh, occasionally, you'd see some of them lower. But to see an approval level in the 50s or the 60s, that, that meant the politician was doing pretty good. And that has sort of been more the norm than the exception in the last year and a half. Right. Except now what we had during the pandemic was approval ratings that were showing up in the 60s and in some cases even touching the 70s. 70s as high as 80. But the story of our latest data on this, Simi, is that those numbers are starting to come back down to earth. We have seen some really significant declines for almost every premier across the board, with the exception of one in Ontario, whose whose number is statistically unchanged. So he's Doug Ford is quite happy to have no loss, but the rest of them, they're all down. Yeah, let's talk about that, because a lot is said about the premiers that were at the top here. So that's the premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, premier of BC, John Horgan, the premier of Quebec, Francois Legault. Uh, But they really, even though they're all sitting at a 56% approval rate, Chachi, not a lot for them to brag about when you consider what they came down from. Yeah, they're all down between 6 and uh, 10 points. They've, They've seen some big declines. John Horgan... Of course, had a tough summer uh, this time. 
but he didn't have a tough summer. British Columbians had a tough summer. And, exactly. and, and they're not very happy about the way he's, he's handled it. So uh, between uh, his, his now really, you know, wishy, I'm sure he wishes he could take them back, statements around the heat dome and sort of coming off as perhaps not as sensitive as he should have at that time, and then response to wildfires. You know, you've still got people in Lytton and other parts of the province really facing a massive amount of uncertainty about trying to get back into their homes. What, what does recovery look like? And that has meant that we've seen uh, a six, seven-point decline for uh, the Premier um, in the last three months. Now, that's not as bad as it's been in other parts of the country. Scott Moe in Saskatchewan, not a Premier we talk a lot about in B.C., but one who has generally sort of topped the charts, he's always had really high approval relative to the rest of the premiers, down 18 points in the last three months. The Premier of New Brunswick also down almost as many points. So we're seeing some really significant declines here. And I'm so curious about those two, because those two premiers in general have had pretty good approval ratings up until now. Well, again, you, you mentioned at the beginning of our chat, Simi, the pandemic. In New Brunswick, we know, for example, that uh, when it comes to containing case spread, the Atlantic bubble has arguably burst, you know, a thousand plus cases in New Brunswick, which is, you know, when, when we hear about a thousand cases in B.C., it sort of gives moment for, for pause and to shudder. Um, New Brunswick is a tiny, tiny province relative to British Columbia. So that's a serious situation there. Saskatchewan, uh, interesting in that both having a very rough, fourth wave. And then, you know, Saskatchewan, Alberta, uh, provinces that are home to some of the highest anti-vax sentiment, some of the the highest opposition to vaccine-related rules or mandates or regulations or mask mandates. So you've got premiers who are trying to continue to address the the outbreaks that we're seeing, uh, the surging infections that we're seeing, particularly among the unvaccinated uh, and they're they're not being thanked for their troubles at all because those are, as I mentioned, very areas mm-hmm. with with much higher levels of resistance or opposition. So at the other end of the spectrum here, you've got Alberta Premier Jason Kenney with a twenty two percent approval rate. That's down nine points. Uh, is that that that's probably one of the low points I would imagine for him since he's been elected? Yeah, I've been I've been tracking provincial premier numbers for a long time, Simi. And usually when a premier is in those low 20s or slipping even lower than that um, with no sign of a turnaround, that's usually when he or she schedules a press conference. And we all know what that press conference uh, is going to be about. Uh, Allison Redford, his predecessor in Alberta, uh, was at 24% approval when she resigned. Uh, Jason Kenney has so far managed to to keep his job, keep his leadership of the uh, United Conservative Party in Alberta, um, and is not necessarily facing an all-out revolt. But you can see the signs. Uh, there's already been members of his own caucus saying, hey, you got to go. He's managed to kick that rock down the road. But the bigger questions will really become around, um, is there uh, a successor waiting in the wings? If so, that could make his political longevity a bit more difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there somebody uh, within the UCP who says, look, man, we can't fundraise or, or stock the war chest for the next election because people are so mad at you? Those become the factors. So polling is only a piece of it. He can hang on to his job, but with sustained numbers like these, uh, it would be a very unprecedented thing to see him uh, turn it around. It's it's rare that I've seen a politician come back from from uh, levels like that. Oh, see, this is why we're going to have to talk to you in a couple months when you do this again. Uh, thanks, Shachi, for your time. All right. Thanks, Simi. Bye-bye. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, you've been hearing about the story in the news this morning. It's that the RCMP are investigating a possible criminal charge of public mischief in connection to allegations made by Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. And this all has to do with that incident in the Save on Foods parking lot last month. Now, there'll be more to come on this story today from reporter Catherine Urquhart, who's working on this. Uh, You can also read more about it at globalnews.ca. But to talk more about this whole situation, we're joined now by Surrey City Councillor Brenda Locke. Thank you for being here. 
Thank you for having me, Simi. Brenda, I know I'm not alone in asking, what the heck is going on in Surrey? (laughs) Sometimes it feels like that. It feels like there's one thing after another. Um, But I guess what I will say, this um, police transition has been controversial from day one. Uh, Certainly, it has not been a process that has been easily followed by anyone, including the public or some of us on council. And so, um, yeah, uh, today was a a surprising day, certainly for me. Do you think this is then about, you know, how tensions have become quite heightened in this whole fight over the transition, the, the policing transition? You know, I, I can't speculate on, on what happened at uh, at Save on Foods and uh, the incident that the special prosecutor is looking into, but um, certainly uh, it's heightened in Surrey. There is a great deal of controversy around uh, the, for the past three years around the police transition, and the public are uh, frustrated. Uh, they deserve answers. They deserve the truth. Uh, so I think... That is a a massive concern in our city. What did you think this morning when you heard or read the news about, you know, Surrey or CMP investigating a possible mischief charge linked to this situation? Well, I was, uh, first of all, it was shocking and and very disappointing. Um, Mr. McCallum is not only uh, the mayor, he's also the chair of the police board. But I think in fairness, to the process, and and that's so critical right now. Um, You know, no charges have been laid. It's just an investigation at this point. And uh, the special prosecutor needs the the time to collect the evidence and do what he needs to do. And and in fairness to everyone, including um, Mayor McCallum, uh, the person that he alleges ran over his toe, and to the public itself. All right, more to come on that. Brenda, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That is Brenda Locke, Surrey City Councillor, talking about this story. So it's a little complicated, and of course there's a lot of legal things involved here, but what we do know is this. For more than three weeks, Global News had been barred from reporting on this information because of a BC Supreme Court non-disclosure order. It was recently successfully challenged. Now, the order was tied to a court production order, which was served on Global BC by police back on September the 21st. That production order revealed the investigation into public mischief. And what they were looking for was they wanted a raw and unedited copy of the interview that reporter Catherine Urquhart did with Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum back on September 6th. And that all had to do with the allegations that he was making about what had happened to him in the parking lot at that Save on Foods. So now we know that the RCMP are investigating a possible criminal charge of public mischief in connection to those allegations. More to come on this story. I mean, we just this just broke a couple of hours ago. There will be updates throughout the day today, so you can check out the full story at globalnews.ca and keep listening for further developments.